The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. This is Jan Barris with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Welcome to our podcast with author Michael Meyer who is here talking to the National Committee for the third time. We're delighted that we've been able to snare him to talk about each of the three books in his trilogy. And we finally come, to my mind, alas, we finally come to the third book in his trilogy, which means that at least for the short while, there will be no more fabulous books from Michael Meyer about his 20 years of experiences in China. Michael, we're delighted to have you here. I listened last night to the podcast you did with my colleague Mara Cunningham Mm -hmm. when you were here about a year or so ago to talk about your book in Manchuria. And she talked to you at that point about your process. Mm -hmm. But since this book is not about one specific place, as your Mm -hmm. two former books were, and I should say to the audience his two former books were The Last Days of Old Beijing, Life in the Vanishing Backstreets of a City Transformed, and the second one was in Manchuria, a village called Wasteland and the Transformation of Rural China. So both of those are about mm-hmm. specific places. Right. This new one is sort of a impressionistic bringing together of your time in China. So how did you approach these? It, did you approach them differently? Was your mm-hmm. writing style, your process of gathering information different? Or? Yeah, they were both really different. Um, the, for the Beijing book, I had a book advance in hand when I moved into the Hutong, and that was driving my research. You know, I had a deadline because the Olympics were coming. It had to come out before then. Um, and with the Manchuria book, I also had an advance and a deadline. For this book, I wrote the entire manuscript and then submitted it. I wanted to work without a deadline and without, you know, market considerations, right? And try to craft a book that talked about the experience of coming to know China as a whole, um, coming in from, you know, knowing nothing as I did. Since I've started uh, working as a professor, I teach uh, creative writing, um, I found that my students' university experience is completely different than my university experience two generations ago. When I was at university, it was about freedom. Now it's much more about safety. Um, And it struck me, I wanted to write a sort of textbook or a guidebook or some way to encourage young people, get on a plane, go and try it, experience something that's beyond yourself and your cell phone, as it were. Because really, if a schmuck like me can figure this place out, anybody can. And do you find that resonates with your students? Well, we'll find out when I assign the text to them next semester. you know, just having done talks now around the country um, for the last couple of weeks since the book has come out, I do. Um, but it, I think it resonates with their parents more in a way of like, you know, look, again, if this person could leave Minnesota knowing nothing about China, uh, the language, even how to use chopsticks, you know, you could take that chance too. Following up, though, on the process mm. aspect. So when you wrote your first, first book, did you have any idea there was a trilogy in you? Or? No, I didn't. I thought, and I think this is probably true of, of most writers, You, it's sort of like, um, and I can't speak, you know, I've never carried child, but it feels, <laughs> from what I understand, it's sort of that same gestation of, of 
you have an idea, which I guess would be, you know, conception, and then you see it through. And by the time you're ready to publish the book, you want it away from you, as far away from you as, as you can get. And I think with the Beijing book, I thought at the time, um, this will be it. You know, after I do the Beijing book, I'll move on to something else. But then as you go through the process of writing, your books change, um, your characters change as you're doing nonfiction. And toward the end of that book, the students that I was teaching in the Hutong, grade four, grade five, and grade six, were all of a sudden leaving the Hutong because they had to go back to their villages to sit for the middle school entrance exam. And it really got me thinking, well, where are they going back to? What's going on in rural China? And it's time to write a book when the book you want to read doesn't exist. And just like there was no book describing the transformation of Beijing and whether it was good or bad, um, I couldn't find a book about what was going on in the countryside at that, at that time, or a book about a regional um, you know, focus of China. We often talk about China as sort of monolithic, right? It's China, it's a book about China, I'm a China expert. And I thought it'd be interesting to write a book about a region and a regional history um, and then do the countryside along with that. Now with the third book, I wrote, it's another odd thing about these books is I, I seem to do my best writing in London. Um, I wrote this book, Road to Sleeping Dragon, um, last semester, I was teaching in London for a semester. My wife and son had yet to join me. And it's a funny thing, too. Um, all of a sudden, I didn't have a four-year-old, you know, <laughs> drawing my attention. And I found I had a lot of time on my hands. And it was sort of, um, I needed to fill that time. Um, and so sitting down and sifting through old photographs and sort of, again, thinking about not only my students, but now my son, when he's 18, when he's 20, can I get him to experience China or go to a country, you know, for the first time? Or will he be like my student? So I sort of wrote with him in mind, actually. You know, this will be a handbook for him to see what mom and dad were up to before he came along. Yeah. So you just mentioned sifting through old photographs. Yeah. And in the book, you talk about dumping out uh, this right. rucksack or yeah, whatever right. it was and sifting through these yeah. precious things and making sure that the cleaning woman didn't... Right. By take mistake, them away, it's all garbage. Yeah. yeah. That's been of history or whatever. Yeah. So was this third book written just from looking at old memorabilia and what it drew up, or did you keep journals throughout your time? That's a really astute question, Jan, and it's something the publisher said, make sure you tell the reader where these recollections are coming from. Right. Because especially now in this age of truthiness, that um, people's, you know, memories betray themselves. And I was very fortunate in that my Sichuan years from 95 to 97 and my early Beijing years right after that was still an era of handwritten letters. And my mom and dad, who have never been to China and to be quite frankly don't have much interest in China, my mom still calls it red China, um, they saved every single thing I had sent home to them, including the envelopes with the stamps on them, right, and the postmarks. And my mom, to her, you know, bless her heart, she sent these to me when I was in London. This big box had arrived, and I could sift through this. And you know, when the first draft of the book came rather quickly, but I was still writing as an expert. You know, oh, China's this and China's that. And it was actually Peter Hessler who read it and said, Myra, we didn't know what we were doing. And you were scared, and you were lonely, and you were sick, and you cried, and it was difficult. And you need to be honest with the reader about how vulnerable one can feel when you're learning a new culture. So I have to tip my cap to Pete on that, because then I had to go back and realize there are quite a lot of passages in these letters to my mom where I'm angry, you know, about the way things are going, or I'm, I'm conflicted about the things I'm supposed to be teaching, or I'm disappointed um, in my students' reactions to things and so forth. So I try to be brutally honest about that learning curve. 
That, that's funny, because I now remember in your acknowledgments, you thanked your parents mm -hmm. for saving every, whether it was an email or a letter with a stamp on yeah, it for that's you. Right. So you didn't, there were no journals. It was I've never been a journal apps. keeper, and I've never been someone, I've never had a writing teacher, you know, advise me to do that, nor do I tell my students to do that. I am a big um, believer in what they call realia, which is, I collect napkins, matchbooks, coasters, uh, train timetables, mm -hmm. you know, Wherever I see things that intrigue me, I sort of am a crow. You know, I, I take something shiny and fly it back to my nest. Um, and I keep those things and those spur memories. And the other thing that I found really useful, when I was in China and I would go out and do reporting for magazines or newspapers, I would always buy a new CD or cassette of a of piece of music I'd never heard before. And I would only play that cassette or CD when I was doing the story. And then when I'd come back to write up my uh, my piece and look at my notes, I'd play that music, and it would invoke so it would evoke so many memories of the trip. I found that really helpful as well. And so for this, I, I will admit I was listening to a lot of Carpenters and uh, Michael Jackson, you know, all the, the karaoke we used to do in the mid '90s uh, to bring back some of those those memories. So this is interesting. It's we're getting off the China mm. subject a little bit in, into sort of process, but it's always interested me if you didn't keep notes. So for instance, when mm -hmm. I had read, read Life and Death in China, which yeah. everybody loved and was a seminal book and important, but it bothered me that she was recounting conversations she had mm -hmm. with especially her daughter, but others sort of word for word, here's what we said between us. And I thought, this was 20, 40 years ago she's talking right. about conversations. I can't remember what I said yesterday. Right. So how does a writer reconcile that? And so in your book, you yeah. have conversations. They're clearly, you didn't have a tape recorder with right. you. So how, how do you do that? That's really good. Yeah. that you're being authentic? I, a lot of it is drawn from letters home. A lot of it is drawn from, I was writing quite a few articles actually. So everything about basketball in this book comes from pieces that had appeared in a Minnesota or Wisconsin mm -hmm. newspaper. The book opens with a, an attack on a bus. I'm out in the middle of nowhere and there's a, somebody attacks me. That is drawn, um, I had to give a, a deposition essentially um, at the U.S. consulate in Chengdu and they gave me a copy of that afterwards and I'm really lucky because it was written the day after I'd gotten back from this attack and my encounter at the police station and everything else. So I could draw from that, you know what I mean? So there isn't any, it wasn't like I was cutting, recreating things that, um, because there are many, many things that I wish I had recount or, or written down at the time, you know what I mean? Like, but I didn't and so the book is actually limited to those source notes that I had. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. that's what, because that was going to be another question I had for you. How did you decide among the myriad experiences you had over 20 right. years, which to put in the book? So the, was it partially the ones you had? Things these? that I have source notes for and could quote from. Yeah. And as we're talking right now, I'm thinking of how many excellent train journeys or trips to little towns that I took, that I took no notes from. And I had no camera when I lived in China either, that I wish I could include those, but I don't have the recollection of it. Yeah. So you mentioned your mother and father, and I had actually jotted a note to ask mm. you, what do they think of this journey you've taken? <laughs> and how did they react to a Chinese daughter-in-law and mm. a, a, a grandson who's half Chinese and half yeah. Western American? Well, that's a really good question. My, um, I'm lucky. My family has always been involved in trades. So they were immigrants from France and Poland who came over rather late, turn of the 20th century. I won't tell you my whole history, but I'll just get to this, that they were bakers, 
They were construction workers. My mom owns a construction company that installs door hardware. Your and mom does. My cool. mom does, yeah. She's in construction. Um, so everybody in my family, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, but they've all had, my grandmother was a, a drafts person and an cool. architect. She designed her home, you know, on Monterey Bay. They're very interesting cool. people. I have an uncle who is a, owns a, a vineyard in Napa. Um, they were all involved in the Catholic church and then, you know, doing things around the church and then trades. And so when I said at a young age, I want to be a writer, I had nothing but encouragement because writing is a trade. It's a useful trade in their eyes. Um, and then I became a teacher, which is as, as useful. That was my major at college. So the writing part, they've always been incredibly supportive of. Um, the China part greatly disappointed them only because of the distance. You know, these letters used to take two weeks to travel. Um, and so and there was no phones and stuff like that. No so they email. Were, there was none of that, exactly. And so they, the, that's what they felt most acute about. It, was, it wasn't a political disappointment to them as it was to my colleagues in Madison, Wisconsin, who felt I was betraying, you know, liberalism by going to work for what they had called a dictatorship and so forth. Um, so my folks have always been always supportive about that. The, it's funny too, a large part of this book is about meeting my wife and we've been together 20 years now and we have a five-year-old son and people will say to me like, oh, it must've been so difficult. And I, I say, well, actually it kind of wasn't. And they'll say, oh, but come on, you know, blah, blah. My wife's family is also involved in trades. And I, you know, Studs Terkel had written about this many years ago in his book, Working, that a taxi cab driver in New York has a lot in common with a taxi cab driver in Paris or Shanghai. And my, our families um, just meshed really well together because they don't get wrapped up in culture and politics, I guess, right? And they want, at the end of the day, they want their kids to be happy. But it was funny, the, just as my wife was told by her mother as a girl, you better finish everything in your bowl. There are starving people in America. Um, <laughs> they, they both were worried about the, the effects of bureaucracy on our relationship. I think people can you know, listening to this know what it's like dealing with visas and other, other things. Um, but then they were also worried that they weren't going to see their grandchild. Where are you going to live? You know, is only one of us going to get to be near the kid? So we completely confounded them by moving to Pittsburgh, which is away from everybody. But yeah, or spending a lot of time in London. Which yeah, is exactly. And in London, yeah, and they won't. My mom won't come to London. Isn't that funny? My parents just do not are not interested in traveling. Have they been to China? No. Really? Isn't that amazing? My yes. wife's mother from, you know, the far Northeast has been to America several times and likes coming to San Francisco and New York and Pittsburgh and so forth. My folks just don't have any interest in it. Huh. Yeah. That's and in a way, I have to say that's helpful to me. My first book is dedicated to them because I'm writing, if I can keep my mom turning the page, if I can keep my mom interested in these characters, then I'm succeeding. And when my mom read the Beijing book, The Last Days of Old Beijing, she said, I'm really confused. Is it a novel or is it a textbook? And I said, that's a really good definition of what nonfiction writing is. It's, it's a textbook. It has information, but it wants you to keep turning the page the way you turn the page for a novel. You want to know what happens next, right? You build suspense. Um, and so it's helped me actually as a writer. I don't, and she's, I should say too, my mom is smart in ways that she wishes I were smart. My mom can read blueprints and price a job and I can't, you know, I, I'm completely useless when it comes to that. So it's funny, we just read different ways, I guess is the way I could say it. This is, alas, the last mm. of your trilogy. So those of us who love your work want to know what's next. I'm writing a book about Benjamin Franklin, who is actually quite fascinated with China, but I'm not writing about his fascination with China, although that's a part of the book. Um, 
But after that, you know, I want that. So I'm doing a book about American history right now because I'm living in Pennsylvania. But after that, I want to write a book about Taiwan. We really need a book about Taiwan. Um, and so after, you know, I think in two years time, I'll, I'll move to Taiwan and, and start working on that. Good. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I also should have said at the outset that the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations is extremely proud to have you as one of our members of our Public Intellectuals Program. You were in the fourth cohort, and I know that you've told me, and we're very proud of the fact that you feel this book was partially at least inspired by the goals of that program, which is to try to help Americans better understand China and vice versa. So I guess the last question is, why do you feel that's important, and what do you feel that you need most to say to Americans mm -hmm. about their perceptions or misperceptions of China? Yeah, I think, you know, beyond the political and economic reasons our relationship is important, there's just the simple fact that we're very alike. And I think it's, it's something that until you go to China, uh, Americans don't quite understand. We're both enormous countries. Our personalities are quite similar, I think. We have very self-effacing senses of humor. Mark Twain has a counterpart in Laosha. We go on and on on the list here. And, and even back to the Dewey, Hoosier, you know, there's been lots of collaborations across the last century, especially, where if you look at it, you think, well, that is interesting that those people got together and were friends, the way Pearl Buck and Lin Yutong were friends and so forth. That, that doesn't happen necessarily with America and other cultures or China and other cultures. We have a lot in common. And I'd like to remind Americans of that. And again, encourage them to read a Chinese writer, eat Chinese food, learn something about Chinese history. And then ultimately, I hope, get on a plane and go. Because I cannot state this strongly enough. If a schmuck like me can figure this place out, anybody can. Well, anybody can, but their process is going to be much aided by reading not just The Road to Sleeping Dragon, but your previous works. And thank you again. Thank you, Jan.